Well, good afternoon, everyone. <clears throat> With all the news about the economy, rising unemployment, government bailouts, and even some rather apocalyptic predictions that we have been hearing recently, a lot of Americans and many outside the United States as well are sobered by this economic slump. We in God's church are not immune to the difficulties as well, are we? We have to live in this world. Uh, at some point before Christ's return, we know that this system is going to collapse. How soon that will happen, of course, is not clear, right? Perhaps we will pull out of this crisis, we'll have another wave of prosperity, or perhaps not. Perhaps this is the beginning of the end. We don't know. In any case, it has gotten our attention. I think we can all safely say that. Suddenly, the massive American economy does not look so massive anymore. The financial giant is not invincible. So, brethren, on a personal level, since we are living through these pre-stages, so to speak, of the collapse of modern Israel, and since we will live through tougher times ahead, where do we turn for encouragement and help? Where can we turn? We know the Bible is full of instructions. It's full of examples that we can learn from. But there's one interesting story that I think might be particularly applicable <clears throat> as we are facing what we are in this country and certainly around the world. Already the effects are, in many places, worse. We have an example of a man who went through a similar experience, who saw dark clouds on the horizon, saw the downfall of his nation ahead of time, prophesied about it, lived through it, and came out the other end. It's a remarkable story. It has tremendous parallels for our time. I'm talking about Jeremiah. I'm talking about Jeremiah. Let's look at Jeremiah today because he experienced his own nation's end time, so to speak. You know, if you want a manual of how to survive and thrive in the end time, what better place than to look at the story of Jeremiah? We can get a lot of encouragement and instruction from it. Dr. Winnell is right now covering the major prophets in his Living University class on Old Testament survey and uh, has been covering a number, a number of these uh, books. And there are a lot of helpful lessons uh, through all the prophets, but we're going to focus on Jeremiah today. If you want a title, my title is End Time Lessons of Jeremiah. End Time Lessons of Jeremiah. First of all, let's get a little background. We're going to tell the story of Jeremiah's life. And it's really kind of a fascinating story. All the things that he went through, the things that he suffered, the things that he faced, um, how God used him in a powerful way. He was born in a town in Judah called Anathoth, in a town about two or three miles north of Jerusalem. What was it like to grow up in Judah at that time? when Jeremiah was a boy? Well, to get a little perspective, he was growing up right around the general time when wicked king Manasseh was ending his 55-year reign. We know the story of Manasseh and all the things he did, apparently uh, martyring Isaiah and instituting many, many uh, horrible practices 
for decades and decades during Manasseh's reign and even before, prophets were talking about and declaring that Judah would come to an end and would be destroyed. So what would have life been like for Jeremiah as a young boy? He would have been hearing stories about the destruction of Jerusalem, right? Even as a five or six or seven or ten-year-old boy, he would have been hearing these stories about these prophets that had been proclaiming that Judah would fall. Now, not everyone believed it, perhaps, but those stories were being told and passed on. It was a part of their psyche. It's interesting. You know, for decades and decades, this work has been predicting the United States fall. You think about it, Mr. Armstrong started uh, doing his work back in the 30s, over 70 years ago. Many of us have grown up in the situation of knowing and hearing stories about how for, for decades we, we have been anticipating a time when our society would fall. We might get a sense of how Jeremiah might have felt. Even when there were upsurges and there were uh, brief reforms, the general trend of society was downward, wasn't it? And isn't that what we see in our view today? The general trend is not good. When Manasseh died, his son Josiah became king. He was a boy king. He rose to the throne at just eight years old. And uh, Jeremiah and Josiah must have been somewhat close in age. Let's pick up the story in Jeremiah chapter 1. Let's turn over there. Jeremiah chapter 1. <clears throat> we find in verse 1, The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, the, of the priests who were in Anathoth and the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. The thirteenth year of Josiah's reign would have made him then around 21 years old, probably around 627 B.C. or so. Um, and commentators say Jeremiah was probably in his early 20s as well. So we get the picture. We have two young men. One is the king of Judah, and one is the prophet who is advising the king of Judah, both in their early 20s. Those of you who are in your early 20s, think about that for a moment. Sometimes some pretty big things happen to young people. We normally think of prophets and kings, you know, as older and having gray hair and being mature. Uh, I won't go any further than that, you know, <clears throat> about gray hair. Um, but we see Jeremiah's calling, right? Verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, O oh Lord God, behold, I cannot speak. I am just a youth. Now, it didn't mean he was 12 or 13 or 10 or 11, but probably in his early 20s, maybe just out of his teens. He said, I can't do this. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I'm a youth, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. So Jeremiah began prophesying with a message to Judah of their downfall as a young man. What was that message? Well, it was a call to repentance for sins that were getting worse and worse 
and worse with each decade that went by, just like in our society, right? Where we can track it. We can see how things are getting worse. Let's just look at a couple examples. Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 7. Here was one of his messages. We'll break into a few of the thoughts here just to get a flavor of what he was saying. What, what was Jeremiah talking about at that time? He says, I brought you into a bountiful country. This is God speaking to Judah. To eat its fruit and its goodness. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. Would you say that we are living in a land where the priests do not handle the law properly? We have the law. We have the Bible. The best-selling book in the whole world. And yet, we are in confusion, right? In a bountiful land, and yet not teaching the law. Verse 19 in chapter 2. He says, Your own wickedness will correct you, and your backslidings will rebuke you. Know therefore and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God, and the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord God of hosts. As time went on, there was no fear of God. They knew God. They talked about God. They had the words of God, but there was no fear of God. Are we living in a time when there is no fear or respect for God and it's diminishing all the time? Verse 34, Also on your skirts is found the blood of the lives of the poor innocents. I have not found it by secret search, but plainly on all these things. Yet you say, because I'm innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me. Behold, I will plead my case against you, because you say I have not sinned. You know, one of the awful sins that was taking place at that time, as we know, was child sacrifice. Children sacrificed to Baal. And God was saying, I don't have to look for it in secret. You're doing it openly. You're not ashamed about this at all. What about in our country? Is our country going down the same path? You know, it's not 40 million abortions anymore. It's almost 50 million abortions that have been committed since 1973. And we do it openly, right? There's no secret behind it. In fact, our new administration, one of their first acts was removing the ban on government assistance to abortions in other countries, for abortions in other countries. They wanted to make a statement, right? There's no hiding it. We're not ashamed about it. We see the parallels with the society Jeremiah was living in and the society we're living in. Chapter 5 and verse 1. Chapter 5 and verse 1. He says, Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. See now and know and seek in her open places. If you can find a man, if there's anyone who executes judgment, who seeks the truth, and I will pardon her. That's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? If there's anyone who's still looking for the truth and still wanting to do what I say, God said, the implication is it was very hard to find. This is the society Jeremiah grew up in and was prophesying to. 
Verse 2, though they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. O Lord, verse 3, are not your eyes on the truth? You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. You have consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to return. Calamity after calamity. Was there any real change? No. What about in our society? Has there been any real general reform, religious reform since 9-11? The churches were filled for a few months, right? And for even a few months, you know, the, the TV stations and movie houses exercise a little restraint. They didn't show violent things as much, you know. They didn't produce violent movies as much for a month or two. What about in, in our situation now with the financial mess we're in? Is there an outcry of, of repentance and we need to get closer to God? Thank you. I'll just move right along there. <clears throat> Glad we do have some someone who's awake. You know, the point is that we have the Bible in our time, just like they had in their time. We are being stricken in our time, just like they were being stricken in their time. But is it making any difference? Or are we hardening ourselves as a people just like they were? Jeremiah chapter 5 and verse 7. Notice Jeremiah 5 and verse 7. He says, How shall I pardon you for this? Your children have forsaken me and sworn by those that are not gods. When I had fed them to the full, then they committed adultery and assembled themselves by troops in the harlots' houses. They were like well-fed, lusty stallions, every one neighed after his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord, and shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? Fornication, adultery, commonplace. Not even unusual in that time. Are we not living in a time that's exactly the same? Some of you may have heard about the recent video game that was banned, or, the, or not banned, but was they began to sell it on Amazon.com, but then they pulled it. It has to do with virtual rape. Now, they did start selling it. They only pulled it after some people complained about it. Where are we going? What is happening? Where is the limit to the, the sickness that we will descend to? Verse 10, Go up on her walls and destroy, but do not make a complete end. Take away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt very treacherously with me, says the Lord. They have lied about the Lord and said, It is not he, neither will evil come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. The point is, history is repeating itself. Modern Israel is going down the same path that ancient Israel and then Judah went down, right? And Jeremiah warned them about it, just as we are warning today, our people. Now, breaking back into the story, Josiah the king, who Jeremiah was prophesying to, did respond positively. And a reform took place when we look back in history for a time. He 
banned Baal worship. He chopped, uh, stopped child sacrifice. He got rid of the mediums, the wizards, uh, reinstituted the Passover, and he was commended for, for many good things. Unfortunately, the character of the nation was set, and the repentance wasn't permanent. So after his death, after he reigned 31 years, things continued to get worse. Now, by the time Josiah died, Jeremiah would have been around 40 or so. And in Josiah's place, there were several, a series of kings. Jehoahaz, or also named uh, Shalom, he reigned for three months. Then Jehoiakim reigned for 11 years. And then Jehoiakim, who reigned for three months. Let's turn over to Jeremiah chapter 22, and we read about some of the pronouncements that Jeremiah had against them. Again, this is just to give us a little bit of flavor of what, what was it like to be in Jeremiah's shoes, growing up in this nation, knowing of the prophecies that were told before, and then also being given this calling from God to pass on the message himself. Around the time that he was uh, in his 40s now, Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse 11, Thus says the Lord concerning Shalom, or Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who reigned instead of Josiah his father, who went from his place. He shall not return here anymore, but he shall die in the place where they have led him captive, and shall see this land no more. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by injustice, who uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him nothing for his work. Verse 17, Yet your eyes and your heart are for nothing but your covetousness for shedding innocent blood and practicing oppression and violence. Shalom was reprimanded for covetousness and greediness. And uh, certainly we see that in our society today, don't we? Among our, our national leaders financial or, or government. <clears throat> you all have heard of and know about Bernard Madoff, who made off with about $50 billion. And some of the investigators found out that for the past 13 years, there was no activity in some of these uh, securities that he was supposedly trading. For 13 years, he swindled people. $50 billion. You know, that was one of the sins that Jeremiah was talking to Judah about the sins of oppressing the poor, of stealing money, of being covetous. Are we not going down the same path? Shalom was deposed after only three months on the throne for his wickedness, and he was taken captive by Pharaoh Necho to Egypt, where he later died. In his place, a new king was put on the throne. His name was Jehoiakim. He reigned for 11 years, but he was evil as well. Starting in verse 18 here, it says, Therefore thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him. Verse 21, he says, I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said, I will not hear. Again, how many ways does this describe our time now? How many ways do we see the parallel between what was happening with Judah and Jerusalem to what we're living in right now. We see it all around us. He said, I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said, I will not hear. This has been your manner from your youth that you did not obey my voice. 
The wind shall eat up all your rulers, and your lovers shall go into captivity. Surely then you will be ashamed and humiliated for all your wickedness. Jehoiakim was the wicked king who thought he could get rid of Jeremiah's words by cutting up the scroll and throwing it in the fire. You know, well, they just recopied it again. Uh, but uh, he, he didn't really want to hear what God had to say. He was a wicked king. He rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar in his third year, and that was the siege that led to that during which Daniel and his friends were led to uh, Babylon. So not a comfortable time to live for Jeremiah. Living through sieges, living through times when there was an army that was surrounding your city, not a fun time to live, right? Brethren, what are we facing in our future? Because that's the direction of our land, isn't it? That's the direction of our message even. Well, after Jehoiakim died, Jehoiakim reigned in his place. He also was named Coniah. He only reigned for three months. He also was an evil king. During his reign, Nebuchadnezzar again came up to Jerusalem and besieged it. Another siege, he says in verse 24, As I live, says the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet of my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. And I will give you into the land of those who seek your life and into the hand of those who face, whose face you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. So I will cast you out and your mother who bore you into another country, where you were not born, and there you shall die. So another king was taken off the throne. By this time, Jeremiah was in his early 50s, preaching the same message, still talking about the destruction of Jerusalem for 30 years. Can you imagine? Well, some of you can imagine because you've been a part of the work that's been doing it for 30 years, or in 40 years, right? In 50 years. We can see how he would feel. Another king, the last king, Zedekiah, was put on the throne. He was a wicked king, but also a very weak king. Second uh, Chronicles chapter 36 and verse 11. Let's turn over there briefly. Second Chronicles Chapter 36 and verse 11, we see the story of, of Zedekiah and the demise of Zedekiah. Second Chronicles 36 and verse 11, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who made him swear an oath by God, but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. How would you like to be Jeremiah? Conditions get worse and worse and worse, and you just keep on working, and they get worse. By and large the people transgressed more and more and more. According to the abominations of the nations, and defiled the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. 
And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. And then it talks about how they overthrew Jerusalem, had no mercy on the inhabitants. They took all the treasures out of the house of God and burned the house of God. A horrible end to the nation that God had planted in the glorious land, the holy land, the beautiful land, but because of their sins, he uprooted. And this last siege, uh, when Jerusalem was overrun, Jeremiah must have been in his 60s. So he had spent his whole adult life warning his nation of their sins and the punishment that would come. He had seen his nation slide into oblivion. A sad story. But I think one that we can draw strong parallels for today. Because what do we see happening today? Do we not see our nation sliding in the same way? The same thing happening. A form of religion, but no real submission to God. The poor are oppressed. Immorality, criminality increases. All of that. You know, in a lot of ways, Jeremiah's life was, was a hard life. They call him the weeping prophet because he cared about people. And he wept. He, he shed tears for Jerusalem. And he felt sick about what was happening. And he mourned for them. And we feel sick. And we mourn for what's going to happen, right? And yet, I think in looking at his life, there's a lot of encouragement because he went through it what we're going to go through. Let's look at a few lessons that we can draw from Jeremiah's life, the suffering he went through, and yet he hung in there and persevered to the end, was a faithful man, survived, and even thrived in very difficult times. Number one, number one, first lesson we can learn from Jeremiah is value your calling. Value your calling. Let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse, verse 4, where we started. Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 4. Remember how Jeremiah was called as a young man for a very difficult job. It says, verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, O oh Lord God, behold, I cannot speak. I am but a youth. This isn't for me. I don't want that burden. I don't want this job. Thank you very much, but I'd rather pass. But the Lord said to me, verse 7, Don't say I'm a youth, for you shall go to all whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Don't be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set this day, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and pull down. Yes, there was a negative message. There was a message of destruction and doom, but also to throw down, uh, to also to build and to plant. 
You know, Jeremiah wasn't stupid. He knew what was coming. He knew the very difficult times that would be coming down the line. He knew where society was going. And he knew that he would have a part in pulling it down. Doesn't sound like a very fun job, does it? That doesn't sound very fun. But he also saw an opportunity that God was giving him to have an amazing calling, to be a part of something that was really important. To be a part of those who had warned the nation, who had tried to get their attention, those who would listen, and some would respond. As we mentioned, men like Daniel and others listened and heard these words. He also wrote to the captives in Babylon. Let's turn over to Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 4. The point is Jeremiah valued his calling. He valued the opportunity that in hard times, God wanted to give him an opportunity to be a part of something very big. To be a part of the solution. To be a part of encouraging other people that might need encouragement. It's interesting, he wrote this letter to those who had already gone into captivity. Jeremiah 29, verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased there and not diminished. Jeremiah, since he accepted the calling, had an opportunity to encourage others, even through very difficult times. Even in times of captivity. Can you imagine? Think through what they went through, being uprooted from their homes being taken by the Babylonians. And yet Jeremiah, because he valued his calling, he had a chance to encourage others. Verse 7, And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive, and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. Verse 10, For thus says the Lord, after seventy years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. Well, brethren, we have some very dark times ahead, don't we? And yet, because of the calling that we have been given, you and I have an opportunity to be a voice, to be a part of the voice that is going to give encouragement to those who are listening. Verse 11, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Isn't it ironic that one of the most beautiful and encouraging and inspiring passages of the whole Bible was written by a man who was living in a society that was about to collapse, and he wrote it to people who were captives in another land. He said, my thoughts, the thoughts of God, are not evil towards you, but are peaceful. And of giving you a future and a hope. Brethren, we are entering a time of fear and doubt. 
even mainstream observers are saying and are acknowledging the dark clouds on the horizon. Are we going to let go of our opportunity to be an encouraging voice? We have a calling. Every single one of us who have been baptized, have been drafted into and called to be a part of the solution at this time. Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13. Will it be difficult to fulfill our calling? Certainly. But will it be rewarding as well? To be a guiding light? To be a beacon of hope for others? Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, Christ said. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You know, now is not the time to shrink back, is it? Now is not the time to be fearful. It's the time to go forward, to appreciate our calling. Just like Jeremiah. Do we appreciate our calling? And the chance that we have to make a difference. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. When is a light needed more than a time of darkness? You know, as the gloom descends, as our society gets closer and closer to absolute collapse as Jerusalem did, when will be a better time for God's people to be beacons of hope and light? Because they're fulfilling their calling. We may not think that our, you know, we're not that important, but we collectively as the church are doing what Jeremiah said. We are a beacon of light and of hope for the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. What an opportunity. What an opportunity. Over in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 14, notice. Here's another passage we often read. What Christ told his disciples. Matthew 25 and verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability, and immediately went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. Now not a bad parallel with our time, right? What are we going to do with the talent we've been given? A lot of people are scared, aren't they? They're ready to take their money and dig it, dig a hole and put it in the ground. Because you don't know where you can put it safely. And yet we've been given something. Not money in this respect, but an opportunity to be a part of God's work. The question is, which of these individuals describes us the most are we valuing our calling you know sometimes in hard times 
hard financial times, good investment opportunities are there for those who see them. Now in this talk, I'm not talking about finances here, but our best investment is right here, investing our time, effort, thought, focus on our calling, isn't it? To be a servant of God today. Verse 19, After a long time the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them, so he who had received five talents came and bought, brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. We know the rest of the story. He did the same with the one who would made two talents. Verse 24, Finally then, he would receive the one talent, came and said, Lord, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you have not sown, and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid, and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what's yours. But you know, God doesn't want his investment back. He wants us to grow, doesn't he? He wants us to fulfill our calling. The question is, brethren, are we fulfilling the calling? Are we valuing the calling that God has given to us? It's interesting that Jeremiah was even in his early 20s when he was given a calling to be a part of a tremendous work. Those of you who are in your early 20s or late teens, don't shortchange God. Jeremiah proved to be a, a, have a pivotal role in his nation in very, very difficult times. God can use you as well. Number two, another lesson from Jeremiah. Number two, there will be sacrifices. There will be sacrifices. Just because we have a valuable calling, just because we're given an opportunity to serve and be a light and be a beacon to our society as, as things get worse and worse, doesn't mean there won't be a price to be paid. Let's turn over to Jeremiah chapter 16 and verse 1. Jeremiah chapter 16 and verse 1. Are we ready to make some sacrifices? We know we'll have to. We know we've been told we'll have to. We know we've committed to. Those of us who are baptized, we've committed to sacrificing everything, right? But to actually do it, that's a little different, right? It's a little too close to home. To fulfill our calling as our society begins to unravel is going to take sacrifice. Notice in Jeremiah chapter 16 and verse 1. Look at the sacrifice Jeremiah made. The word of the Lord also came to me, saying, You shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. Now suddenly that job doesn't sound real good, right? To be a prophet of the Lord he was going to not get married. Now, those of you who are in the marriageable age, um, that would be a sacrifice, wouldn't it? Could some of us have to make sacrifices like that before it's all over? We don't know. Now, why did God tell Jeremiah he would not take a wife? 
was he just being mean? He just didn't want Jeremiah to, you know, have the blessings of, of family and children and grandchildren? No, of course not. It's very practical. Verse 3, For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who were born in this place, and concerning their mothers who bore them and their fathers who begot them in this land, they shall die gruesome deaths. They shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried, but they shall be like refuse on the face of the ground on the earth. They shall be consumed by the sword and by famine, and their corpses shall be meat for the birds of heaven and the beasts of the earth. That was reality. That was what was going to happen. And God told Jeremiah, you know it's going to be easier for you if you don't have a family. Looking back in the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah described what he saw. What happens in a siege, brethren? What's going to happen to our nations? Israelite nations around the world who are going to go into tribulation. Look at what happens in a time of captivity and famine and starvation. Lamentations chapter 4 and verse 4. He said, The tongue of the infant clings to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The young children ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. What would break your heart more than having children and not being able to feed them? This is the time that Jeremiah went through. This is the time that's prophesied for our countries. You know, by the time it was all said and done, Jeremiah probably understood more deeply why God had said, don't get married. Verse 8, he says, Their appearance is blacker than soot. He's talking about the dying and the dead in the streets. They go unrecognized in the streets. Their skin clings to their bones. It's become as dry as wood. Those slain by the sword are better off than those who die of hunger, for these pine away, stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of the compassionate women have cooked their own children. They became food for them in the destruction of the daughter of my people. The unbelievable happened. Now how much of a sacrifice was that? That Jeremiah didn't have a family. Brethren, the point is we are living in the time we're living in. We, we can't wish it away. We just can't. And there will be sacrifices. We don't know what they will be. You don't know what God will require you to do. I don't know what God will require me to do. But we have to trust His perfect will. That He knows best. That His will is perfect. He is merciful. And if He tells us to let go of something, He knows what He's doing. Now, it could be marriage or having or not having children. We, we understand that there is a place in the New Testament that talks about how woe to those who are pregnant or giving... Uh, uh, have nursing babies in the time of of going to the place of safety. You know, it, it's just reality. It makes it more difficult. Now, I for one am thankful that uh, years ago, you know, uh, there were some who believed it was no longer time to have children. Uh, this was about 40 years ago, and uh, I'm really thankful that my parents didn't feel it was yet time to not have children. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. So, we're not saying it's not yet time to it's, it's not time to have children. The point is, there may be a time when things like that 
are a sacrifice that that we make. But we have been called to make sacrifices, haven't we? Let's turn over to first first Peter chapter four and verse twelve. Those of us who have committed to the sacri- to, to, to Christ being our Savior, to having his uh, death cover our sins, we have given up our lives already, haven't we? And we have told him we will be willing to sacrifice anything. First Peter chapter four verse twelve, beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed you may also be glad with exceeding joy. And if you are approached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. You know, our, our society um, doesn't do very well with sacrifice. Wouldn't you say that? Um, we're not used to it. We're used to, I want, I have. You know, I see, I eat, right? Um, we're, we're not used to and very good at denying ourselves things we want. But if we are to fulfill our calling, we're going to have to sacrifice. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 23. Again, we don't know in what way, in every way, but we need to steal ourselves for that because this time is coming. Not to be discouraged, but to be realistic. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 23, Then Jesus said to his disciples, this is after talking about the rich young ruler who came and was told to be willing to give up everything, and he couldn't do it. And then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished and said, Who then can be saved? You know, if the rich can't do it, um, what about the rest of us? They've got it all together, right? And he said, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Whatever you and I have to sacrifice, if we stay close to God, we'll be able to. But the point is, we need to be willing. We need to be ready. Verse 27, Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children, like Jeremiah, made sacrifices because of the times they were living in. Or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life, but many who are first will be last, and last first. Part of surviving and thriving in the future, we will have to make sacrifices. Another lesson from Jeremiah is number three, take a stand. Take a stand. You know, there are times when you have to take a stand, don't you? As one song used to go, if you don't, Stand for anything. You'll if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Um, there are times when we can't sit on a fence any longer. We have to make a choice. <clears throat> Jeremiah was certainly faced with those kind of situations, but so were others. Notice in Jeremiah chapter thirty-eight and verse one. 
Towards the end of Jeremiah's ministry, there's an interesting example and story about King Zedekiah. Jeremiah chapter 38 and verse 1, as the city was being besieged for the final time. Jeremiah had been in prison, had been cast into prison before, but this was just one more. That was his life. That was his lot for 40 years. He went through this. Why? To fulfill his calling, to accomplish the goal, the job. But here he went again. Now Shephatiah the son of Matan, Gadaliah the son of Pasher, and Jukal the son of Shelemiah, and Pasher the son of Malchiah, heard the words that Jeremiah had spoken to all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, He who remains in the city shall die by the sword, by famine, by pestilence, but he who goes over to the Chaldeans shall live. His life shall be a prize to him, and he shall live. Thus says the Lord, This city shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which shall take it. Therefore the princes said to the king, King Zedekiah, Please, let this man be put to death. For thus he weakens the hands of the men of war who remain in the city, and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man does not seek the welfare of this people, but their harm. Then Zedekiah the king said, Look, he is in your hand, for the king can do nothing against you. So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon of Malchiah the king's son, which is in the court of the prison. They let Jeremiah down with ropes, and in the dungeon there was no water but mire, so Jeremiah sank in the mire. Now, were we just talking about sacrifice a moment ago? Not knowing what we might have to give up. Sometimes it's our comfort being let down into a well of no water, but mire and muck. Now, he wasn't dead, but being left there, he, he would have died. He was fulfilling his calling. Not very fun but he had given his life to God to use as he will. He was delivered, but look at what happened next. Verse 13, skipping a little bit down the, the page here. So they pulled Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the dungeon, and Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. Then Zedekiah the king sent and had Jeremiah the prophet brought to him at the third entrance of the house of the Lord. And the king did, said to Jeremiah, I will ask you something and hide nothing from me. Now, Imagine you're Jeremiah for a moment. You're thinking, right. Okay, last time I told you something, and then I was put in this well that had no water and only muck and mire. You want me to tell you the word of the Lord again? No way. You're coming to me for advice? Verse 15, Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, If I declare it to you, will you not surely put me to death? And if I give you advice, you won't listen to me. A tiny little bit of hesitancy on Jeremiah's part. Why? Because Zedekiah would, would waver. He was weak. He would go one way, then the other way. He would say he's going to do the right thing, then he'd back, back down. You, you never really knew what he was going to do. You couldn't rely on his word. Never took a stand. That's the point. Well, he's going to be tested. Verse 16. So Zedekiah the king swore secretly to Jeremiah, saying, As the Lord lives, who made our very souls, I will not put you to death, nor will I give you into the hands of those men who seek your life. Then Jeremiah said, Okay, to Zedekiah, Okay, I'll tell you what I've said for the last 40 years. Okay, Jeremiah was consistent. He had been saying and doing the same thing for 40 years or, or thereabouts. 
He said, okay, I'll tell you again. Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, if you surely surrender to the king of Babylon's princes, then your soul shall live. Look, here's the way out. Here's the way to prosper. This city shall not be burned with fire, and you and your house shall live. But if you do not surrender to the king of Babylon's princes, then this city shall be given into the hand of the Chaldeans. They shall burn it with fire, and you shall not escape from their hand. Okay, that's straightforward. Maybe Zedekiah will make the right decision this time. Verse 19. Zedekiah the king said to Jeremiah, Nope, I can't do that. I am afraid of the Jews who have defected to the Chaldeans, lest they deliver me into the hand and they abuse me. I'm scared of what people will say when they take me to the other captives. I'm afraid of what people will think. Brethren, how, how, what big issues hinge on very small personal insecurities and fears and worries about what people will think? Zedekiah was refusing to take a stand. He wanted to stay on the fence. What about our lives? Are there places where we're really holding back from really going all out for God? Really committing to this way of life? And getting off the fence? You know, one way or the other, we're going to have to commit to either go all out or not. And not making a decision is a decision, isn't it? And that's what Zedekiah did. Jeremiah begged Zedekiah to take a strong stand. Verse 20, Then Jeremiah said, They shall not deliver you. Please obey the voice of the Lord, which I speak to you. So it shall be well with you, and your soul shall live. Don't do this. Don't hold back. Have faith in what God is telling you. You can commit to God and be rewarded for it. Just take that step. Verse 21, but if you refuse to surrender, this is the word that the Lord has shown me. Now behold, all the women who are left in the king of Judah's house shall be surrendered to the king of Babylon's princes. And those women shall say, your close friends have set upon you and prevailed against you. Your, your feet have sunk in the mire and they have turned you again. You know, Jeremiah was pulling out of the stops. He said, even the ladies will make fun of you. Uh, they'll, they'll say that you didn't have the, the guts to make a, a, a difficult decision. Verse 23, so they shall surrender all your wives and children to the Chaldeans. You shall not escape from their hand, and, but shall be taken by the hand of the king of Babylon, and you shall cause this city to be burned with fire. It was his decision. The sad story is that Zedekiah couldn't pull the trigger. Brethren, what about us? You know, there are going to be times in the future we'll have to take a stand. What about right now? Are we making a commitment right now? Are we doing the things that we know we need to do right now? Or are we waffling? Are we sitting on the fence? We can't sit on the fence forever, can we? We need to value our calling. We need to be willing to sacrifice. We need to take a stand. Number four, <clears throat> we need to love one another. Love one another. You know, 
we were just reading the story of Jeremiah's being led out from the dungeon and escaping death. How did he escape? Let's we skipped over that. Let's go back a little bit. Jeremiah chapter 38 and verse 6. Jeremiah 38 verse 6. So they took Jeremiah, cast him into the dungeon which was in the court of the prison, and they let Jeremiah down with ropes. And in the dungeon there was no water but mire. So Jeremiah sank in the mire. Now Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, one of the eunuchs who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the dungeon. When the king was sitting at the gate of Benjamin, Ebed-Melech went out of the king's house and spoke to the king, saying, My lord the king, these men have done evil in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they cast into the dungeon. And he is likely to die from hunger in the place where he is, for there is no more bread in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, saying, Take from here thirty men with you, and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the dungeon before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him and went into the house of the king under the treasury, and took from their old clothes and old rags, and left them down by ropes into the dungeon to Jeremiah. Then Abed-Melech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, Please put these old clothes and rags under your armpits under the ropes. And Jeremiah did so. So they pulled Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the dungeon, and he remained in the court of the prison. Jeremiah was delivered by someone who knew what he was doing and appreciated what he was doing. And perhaps even had a relationship. We, we don't know. Maybe uh, a friend of Jeremiah's. What's the point? Well, in a time of uncertainty, uncharted territory, we don't know how we will need each other in the future. We don't know how we will need to depend on one another. Right? In the book of Acts, we read about the early church pooling resources to help one another, we may reach that point of time. Some even selling assets to help one another. Well, we have to do things like this in the future. Well, we don't know. But it seems likely. Now, why is this important? Well, because in the end time, in a time when people need each other the most, the prophecy is that Love will wax cold. Let's turn over to Malachi chapter 3 and verse 16. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 16. We're going to need one another. That's a lesson that we can see from the book of Jeremiah. Malachi 3.16, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and who meditated on his name. Interesting. Notice the connection between fearing God and speaking one with, with another. The implication is these were people who liked to talk to one another, who liked to actually be around each other, and enjoyed that fellowship with each other, getting to know one another, spending time together. Really quite a remarkable connection, don't you think? Verse 17, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. In rough times, we need each other more, don't we? And we don't know what kind of times we're going to face. 
that we may be just what we need. Are we developing relationships now that will help us in the future? You know, some of our brethren overseas are already facing these kinds of things. We we heard about some of the things happening in Martinique. One of our members, I'll just read it in the update. Since February 11th, we have been home without fuel or almost, and with a refrigerator that is becoming empty. The banks are closed as well as the supermarkets and the gas stations are requisitioned. The schools are closed since February 5th and not expected to be open until March 2nd. There is, however, solidarity among people who exchange products and services. I give English lessons to the neighborhood children. Another lady gives math courses. Another shares her garden vegetables and another the fruits of her trees. The water and power cutoffs bother me the most. We are operating in slow motion from day to day, and our main worry is planning meals since we have taken from our hurricane reserves. Some of our brethren are already facing these issues of having to help one another, their neighbors help one another just to survive. Brethren, what about we? What about us? What about those of us in this room? What about those who hear this tape later on in local congregations? What are we doing today to cultivate relationships that may be exactly what we need in the future? You know, sometimes we may look at fellowship as an optional thing. You know, activities, that's for other people. Um, I'm just not into activities. Why do our local pastors uh, organize activities and, and create opportunities for us to be together as brethren? What's the purpose? Have you ever thought about it? Have you ever thought it through? You know, we had a fun show last weekend, and it was really a lot of fun. We had a good time. But what was the purpose of the fun show? Was it to have music? Was it to have singing? Was it to have comedy acts? Was it to have instrumental numbers? Was it to give the children a chance to perform? Was it to give the older folks a chance to perform? You know. Why did we do it? Is it because these ministers just have a lot of time on their hands and they need something to do to keep them busy? You know, don't want them to get bored. Why did we do it? Or did we build it as a tool for drawing people together? Really, the fun show itself is inconsequential. I mean, sorry for all those who were in it, you know. <laughs> Everyone who put so much work into it, Mr. Crespo, sorry about that. The, the event itself was inconsequential. What were we doing? We were drawing the family together, right? so that we can get to know each other, so we can share laughs, so we can share our lives. Why? Because we need to. And we don't know how much more we're going to need to in the future. Jeremiah repeatedly was saved by others, by the relationships he had, by the friends he had. And in crucial times, they helped him. We're going into difficult times. We can get some encouragement by the things that we see he did. He valued his calling. He understood the purpose of sacrifice. 
He took a stand even in difficult times, and he didn't shrink back from loving his brethren. Number five, we must put our faith and trust in God. These are all simple points, aren't they? Not very complex, but a lot harder to practice. We must put our faith and trust in God. Isn't it interesting? Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9. Some of the most poignant descriptions of the human heart and about what we have to do to really, to, to, to really thrive and to really pass the tests that we are going to make are found in the book of Jeremiah. Someone who faced down the fact that he was in a very difficult situation and lived through it and didn't exactly know what would happen the next day. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Now, we often read that in terms of personal examination. And now, as Passover comes soon, we, we should. But what's the real point? Is it that, that we're so rotten you know, God has no use for us? That we are so bad that we are unredeemable? Of course not. That's, that's not the meaning at all. Back up in verse 1 of Jeremiah 17. He said, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With the point of a diamond, it's engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of your altars. In other words, so much sin had been so deeply ingrained that it was hard for God to even get through. So he's warning us, don't let that happen to you. Don't rely on yourself. Rely on God. Verse, verse 5, thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord, for he shall be like a shrub in the desert, and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. You know, there is no way we can insulate ourselves from hard times, ultimately, because of our smarts and our ability and, and you know, our intelligence and all, all of our, um, our, our methods. Ultimately, we've got to trust God. We have to trust God. Verse 7, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord, for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes. But its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. Are we putting our trust in God now? Because, you know, it's going to get more and more crucial that we do that, right? We know where this is going. Are we looking to Him now to direct our lives? Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 23. Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 23. If we are giving this message to the world, to, to repent, to, to turn from the self and, and turn towards God, how much are we doing it ourselves? Are we living it ourselves? That's part of our gospel message, but are we doing it ourselves? Verse 23 in Jeremiah 10. Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. O oh, Lord, correct me, but with justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Again, we're coming up to Passover, and we ask God to correct us. We ask God to show us ourselves in gentleness. You know, that's a lesson that we learn from Jeremiah. How much are we doing that? 
So we can make sure that we're on God's side as times get worse. The last thing we'll look at, and this will be number six, and following, I believe, was it Mr. Meredith last week had six as well, or, or eight? Yeah, I think eight, right? So eight points. So I'm going to have six this week. We're not going to have seven. I apologize for that. <clears throat> but number six is stay focused on the mission. Stay focused on the mission. You know, Jeremiah chapter 20, there's an interesting passage that we read from time to time in regard to our mission. Jeremiah was human. He was susceptible to emotions. He got down. But look at this example. Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 1. Now Pasher, the son of Immer, the priest who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. Then Pasher struck Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. We see more sacrificing by Jeremiah. Verse 7, And he said, O Lord, you induced me, and I was persuaded. You are stronger than I, and I have prevailed, and have prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. You know, Jeremiah did his job. But after that job was over, he, he, he collapsed. He said, you know, I don't know if I can do this any longer. I'm getting tired of this. I'm all alone. I've been faithful. I've been consistent. I haven't wavered. But all I get is insults. And I'm tired. Verse 8, For when I spoke, I cried out, I shouted, Violence and plunder, because the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. I said the end was coming, a day of reckoning, punishment for sins, and all I got was people mimicking me and mocking me. And isn't it true even today? We have that word, Jeremiah. What does that mean? Some crazy uh, guy walking around saying the end is near. The world is going to end, right? Even in our language, we're still mocking Jeremiah today. Well, he just got tired. Verse 9, Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. I'm done. You know, I've done enough. Maybe someone else can do this job. <laughs> I'll pass it off to someone else. I'll just call crawling a hole, go away, and no one will ever bother me again. That's how he felt. Will we ever feel that way? Do we ever feel that way? We know he didn't stay that way, because the very next thought, But his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding back, and I could not. You know, when Jeremiah was hurting, when he was tired, when he was fed up, what kept him going? The mission. The job that he had to do. He had to finish what he started. Mr. Durstein talked about the end of a thing is better than the beginning. Jeremiah, what drove him to the end was finishing what he started. Verse 10, For I heard many mocking, fear on every side. Report, they say, and we will report. All my acquaintances watch for my stumbling, saying, Perhaps he can be induced. Then we will prevail against him, and we will take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me as a mighty, awesome one. Jeremiah wasn't confused about whose strength he needed and depended on. And that gave him courage and endurance all the way to the end. <clears throat> you know, we have a mission, don't we? We have a mission today to tell the people the truth. 
to cry aloud, to spare not, to hold nothing back. That's why we're here. That's the role of the church. That's the work of the end-time people of God, to give a warning to the world, to our people, to the whole world. Not always a pleasant message, but how can we stop, brethren? How can we stop until we're finished? When God has specifically called us out of the world for this purpose right now, you know, having a purpose and direction means everything, doesn't it? Even on a sports team, a sense of mission and focus. Here in in uh, Charlotte, <clears throat> some of you know about the uh, Charlotte, uh, the Carolina Panthers. There was a uh, an article here in a few uh, some weeks ago entitled "How the Season Was Saved." Some of you know about the fight. That happened earlier in the season, I guess in August, between Steve Smith and Ken Lucas. I guess they were having a practice and uh, something happened and Steve Smith came up and, and uh, punched Ken Lucas in the mouth. Broke his nose, I think he was out for a while and, and Steve was, uh, Smith was, uh, was uh, taken out for a couple of weeks. They had a meeting not that long afterwards of just the players, no coaches. They wanted to have just the players together. And as the article goes, it says, Steve Smith spoke first, according to Lucas. Standing in front of 80 players, Smith gave an emotional apology. Lucas says he was next. He knew the rest of the team would take its cue from him. There were a lot of upset people, Lucas says now. Everybody was really looking at how I was going to react to the whole situation. I knew it was very important that I went in there and was positive. It could have been a dagger in this team and killed the whole season. But I knew we had something special this year, and I didn't want to mess that up with a simple fight. You know, having a purpose, even as minuscule as a sports team, and wanting to make the playoffs, and that's as far as they went. You know, they didn't go any further this year than that. But even having a goal gave them what? It gave them the ability to look beyond the petty little things that happened. Having a purpose, having a mission, gave them the ability to say, Look, I forgive you. I'm going to move on. How powerful, brethren, is it that we have a mission? When personal things can trip us up. We're coming to Passover very soon. It's helpful to keep us focused on our mission. That's what drives us. That's what we have been called to do. You know, General, General Patton, on the eve of the invasion of Europe, uh, speaking to the Third Army, gave a speech to motivate them. And what did he say? He said there will be sacrifices. He said some might die. But he said everyone dies sometime. He said there will be difficulty, but the key was sticking together and helping each other. And finally he said, and I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit, clean it up a little bit for the sake of our mixed audience, folks. This is one uh, rendition of it. The general paused, his eagle-like eyes swept over the hillside, and he said with pride, There is one great thing that you men will all be able to say after this war is over, and you are home once again. You may be thankful that 20 years from now when you are sitting 
by the fireplace with your grandson on your knee and he asks you what you did in the Great World War II, you won't have to cough, shift him to the other knee and say, well, your granddaddy shoveled manure in Louisiana. Sorry for those who are from Louisiana here. No, sir, you can look him straight in the eye and say, Son, your granddaddy rode with the great Third Army and a man named Georgie Patton. Someday we're going to look back, brethren. We're going to look back on the tough times that are yet ahead right now. What are we going to remember when we look back? What are we going to think about? We aren't fighting World War II, but we are in a war. Someday it will all be over. And we can take great satisfaction, like Jeremiah, that we did everything we could to prepare a generation to fulfill our calling, even though it took sacrifices, even though it was difficult. Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 24 and verse 6 in conclusion. That key word, conclusion. Matthew 24 and verse 6. Jesus Christ said, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. We are facing a time just like Jeremiah. We are facing some very dark days, and yet we can face them with hope and with courage. Why? Because Jeremiah did. We can look at his example. And we know who is on our side, if we are on his side. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. We're talking about The end of the age, right? Just like Jeremiah went through. We're talking about the same things that he faced and yet successfully thrived and survived. Because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end shall be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Brethren, we have a job to do. Let's be about our Father's business. Let's be encouraged by the example of Jeremiah. Let's value our calling. Even in difficult times, especially in difficult times. Let's be willing to sacrifice and know the purpose of it. And know that God does not allow us to be tempted above which we're able. Let's take a stand when we have to. Let's not be afraid of standing up for the right thing. Let's not sit on the fence forever. Let's help one another. Let's love each other, knowing that we're going to need each other. And let's put our faith and trust in God, knowing that we can do nothing by ourselves, of and by ourselves. And no matter what, let's stay focused on the mission. Who knows? Maybe someday Jeremiah will ask us what it was like.